Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. The text is really principally the first four verses, but I want to read because I'm going to reference these other verses and even read, reread them at some point, uh, some of them in the uh, sermon. But the, uh, the outline is drawn from verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> but this is the word of the Lord. It contains everything that you and I need for life and godliness. It has no errors in the original languages in which it was given, and we have the promise in faithful translations of the original languages that it remains to us the authoritative word of Christ. So listen as he speaks to you as I read. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the privilege of hearing you speak through the pages of Holy Writ. Thank you for the privilege of hearing the word preached. Would you please allow me to preach in a way that is in complete conformity with what uh, is meant by you in this portion of your word. And would you please honor yourself in the preaching? And would you please bless us through the preaching? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, you know anyone who has been adopted in your family, perhaps, or maybe a friend of yours, a playmate or something like that? You might not know somebody who's been adopted, but sooner or later you'll meet somebody who's been adopted. I have a nephew who has been adopted. I also have a cousin who is my age, within actually about a month of my age, who has been adopted as well. Now, my cousin and my nephew, both of them, were born into different families with different moms and dads than they have now. Uh, I'll take my cousin. Uh, His name, by the way, is Dog. Uh, Dog was once identified with one family. In other words, identified means he belonged to one family when he was born. But for the last 60 years or so, he is now, uh, belongs to the Erickson family. His name is Dog Erickson. And he is an Erickson. Uh, it is who he is. He's part of the Erickson clan, if you will, or family. I bring this up, and I've used this example before, but I bring adoption up because this is exactly what happens to a person when he or she becomes a believer. If you children are trusting in Jesus, you have been brought out of 
uh, one family and placed in a new family. Now, I'm not talking about your biological mom and dad. I'm talking about all of us, before we become believers in Jesus, are trusting in Jesus, we actually belong to Satan, the Bible says. We're children of the devil. Until we trust in Jesus and say, Jesus, save me from my sins, please. And when we trust him to save us, then we become children of God. We move from one family into another family. And really, it's not just God, but it's God the Son that we become identified with or belong to. And God the Son is Jesus. We become united to Jesus. And he is now the head of us like your dad is your head. And he is now, uh, we are now part of that new family that is Christ's family, or the Bible calls it Christ's body. And you are in Christ's body, and you are identified with Christ's spiritual body, his spiritual family, because you are in Christ, the the language that uh, the Bible uses. And so we're going to be talking about this identification with Jesus and its implications through the remainder of this message this morning. There are three points in this message from this text. And again, focusing on verses yeah, four, one through four. Uh, first point, um, what's true of you? We're going to look at what's true of you, if you're a Christian now I'm talking about. What's true of you as a result of your spiritual union with or identification with Christ? Secondly, we're going to look at uh, how you are to live in light of your spiritual union with Christ or identity with Christ. And then finally, we're going to briefly look at what will happen to you on account of your spiritual union or identification with Christ. When I use, say, identification, I mean spiritual union. I'm using the words identically or the phrases identically. So you'll hear that throughout the sermon. So, first of all, we're going to look at what's true of you. If you're a Christian, only if you're a Christian is this true, but if what's true of you as a result of your spiritual union with Christ. By the way, let me uh, make this point right up front before I go any further. The only way that a person is made spiritually united to Christ or becomes identified with Christ is if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, who is 100% God, 100% man, was and still is, and always will be, and he's the only savior of sinners. He's the only way by which a sinner, and we're all here sinners, we've all sinned against God and offended God by our sin, we are uh, only saved from what our sins deserve, the punishment that our sins deserve, which is eternal damnation in hell. We're only saved by that, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone as our savior and our Lord as well, which means we start taking orders from him and stop taking orders from our ourself. Um, and uh, only the person who has trusted in Jesus alone is spiritually united to Christ, uh, and the words that, kind of churchy words that we use are who is saved or who is born again is somebody who is identified with Christ. So, what is true of you as a result of your spiritual union with Christ if you're a Christian? First of all, uh, well, not first of all, what's, what's true of you <clears throat> is you have become identified with <clears throat> excuse me, all aspects or phases, I, that's not the right word, aspects is better, all aspects of Jesus' substitutionary atoning work rendered on behalf of all believers down through the ages. You are identified with all aspects of his work. Now, what do I mean by aspects of his work? What I mean is uh, the various aspects of Jesus' uh, substitutionary work for the believer is he lived a perfect life in the place of the believer. He died uh, uh, as a penalty for the believer's sin. Um, he was buried. Um, he was, and that, that's a part of what of the death, He rose to newness of life. He was raised uh, physically. His body was raised, revivified, if I can use that fancy word. And then he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God. He's not in a physical chair at the right hand of an old man. That's just an expression uh, uh, that means the place of greatest honor in in heaven and indeed in all the universe belongs to Christ as the exalted Savior of uh, God's people. Uh, in fulfillment of the of the mission that he was given before he came to earth. 
So, you, if you're a believer, you have become identified with his life, with what he accomplished in his life. What did he accomplish in his life? He perfectly obeyed his own divine law. He is the law, the great lawgiver. He was the one who gave the law at, he didn't give the law at Sinai, he wrote the law down at Sinai. The law was given in the garden to the conscience of Adam and Eve and everybody that descended from them. Every, every person out there, whether they've read the Ten Commandments or not, knows at some point, more or less, the Ten Commandments in their heart. Has a sense of right and wrong, uh, as God defines it, until they ignore their conscience long enough until the point their conscience essentially goes to sleep on them and never wakes up, unless God is merciful. Um, and that law, that law of that obedience to God, God's will, Jesus perfectly accomplished, and nobody else ever has. No other man, and Jesus was the God-man, and is the God-man. No other man has done that. And he fulfilled that perfectly obedient life uh, under the law in your place, if you're a Christian. That's why God can see you and be pleased with you, even though you and I, we are all people who regularly disobey him, even as Christians, less and less so over time, Lord willing. But we have kept the law in the sight of God because Jesus kept the law in our place. We perfectly obeyed. We're perfectly righteous in the courtroom of heaven. God declares us to be so because Jesus is perfectly righteous and his perfect obedience was credited to us when we were born again. Also, he, uh, he, we, we are identified with him in his death and burial. And I'll explain more about that here in just a moment. Um, actually, just now. But his death burial, and resurrection. We'll get to that here as we, as we go through uh, this point uh, on what's true of us as uh, those who are united to Christ. So let's get to it. You, if you're a Christian, have died with Christ. You have become identified with his death as well as his life. This passage doesn't focus on the life. It focuses on the death and the resurrection. But you've died with Christ. He says that in verse 3. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And the death is through our union with Jesus that we have died. We haven't died physically. I'm still here. My heart's still beating. So is yours. And he's not talking about spiritual death because you wouldn't be here if you were spiritually dead. Well, I say that. Uh, you might be showing up, but you wouldn't be participating um, uh, genuinely in the worship of God because you worship another God yourself. Uh, but but you have died with Christ. So what does that mean? Well, in one sense, you and I, we are the same people uh, now after our conversion that we were before our conversion. Before we became Christians, and now we are still the same people. I am the same person that I was before November 3rd, 1981. In one sense, that's when I was born again. But in one sense, I'm the same person. That is true. But in another very real sense, you, we, who are Christians, are not at all the same person that we were before we became Christians. We are not, in another sense. Prior to your being saved, you were, and I'm going to read this right off my page here, you were a sin-covered, God-hating hell-bound child of the devil who smelled of spiritual death, if I can put it that way, and so was I, by the way. I'm not picking on you. Picking on all of us. That's what we were. And if you're still, if you're not a Christian today, that's what you still are. A sin-covered, God-hating, hell-bound child of the devil who smells like spiritual death. Now, if, if you're an unbeliever here and you're saying, wait a minute, I don't, I don't hate God. I'm here, aren't I? You still hate God. If you have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in Him alone to save you and acknowledged, I deserve eternal wrath for my sins and my sins uh, offend you, God, and, rightly, and I, I rightly deserve your condemnation. Unless you understand that and turn from those sins to God, you hate God. Because you don't, you're right now in rebellion against him. You're like, no, 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 I'm good. I don't need Jesus. I need me in charge, not him, not you. That's to hate God. You don't want him, in other words, until you do, which you need to, by the way. 
So prior to you being saved, that's what you were, if you're a Christian. But now, again, if you're a Christian, uh, now that Jesus has, if I can put it this way, gotten a hold of you, God has gotten a hold of you, God the Son has gotten a hold of you, you are now, in a, uh, this other sense, you are a sin-washed, blood-bought, God-loving, heaven-bound child of God who, I won't use the word smells, exudes spiritual life. That's what you are. That's your position. That's your status, which will never change, by the way. Ever. Because God doesn't change his mind once he chooses to save somebody. Now, what's the reason for this remarkable transformation from before and after uh, on the part of the the Christian, before um, he was a Christian to after he's a Christian? Well, the reason, the explanation for this transformation of this the, the status that you have from what you once were is because, but I, I mentioned it already, because Jesus died in your place. Jesus died as your substitute. He did what only he could do, because if you did it, you land in hell forever. He died for you and in your place. He took the punishment that your sins and my sins deserve rightly. We are unrighteous people by conception, from conception onward. We are God-haters. We don't want the true God. We might want a God who looks a little bit like, or maybe a lot like the true God. I was talking with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, yesterday, um, day before yesterday. Um, you know, their God in many ways resembles the Christian God, the true, the biblical God, but he's not. Anyway, Jesus acted as your substitute. He took your place and the place of anybody who would ever put their trust in him. Uh, he took the believer's place in his death. And we are united to him in the likeness of his death. This, was a, this dying that we experienced was a one-time event that occurred the moment we were spiritually united to Jesus when the Lord gave us a new heart and we believed on him, upon Christ, that is. The moment that happened, whenever you were, were, uh, were converted, that's when you died. With Christ. His, the merits of his death were applied to you, in other words. What are the implications of this? They're big. The fact that you have died with Christ if you were a Christian. You have died to the enslaving power that Satan and the world once exerted upon you and had over you. Paul speaks of this over in Romans 6, which is the natural chapter to turn to when you're looking at Colossians 3 is what Paul said over in Romans 6. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 6. Um, I'll read through verse 11. And so I'm answering the question here using this verse, and I'll I'll repeat some of the points that are found in it. The implications of the fact that you have died with Christ. Romans 6, 6. Actually, I'll back up to verse uh, 4. You know what, I'll I'll just back up right to the beginning. Let's just read all 11 verses. I'll read them. Here we go. So, 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin, and we died to sin in Jesus' death, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Still practice it, in other words. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, there's the into Christ part, have been baptized into his death. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, for the purpose that, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been 
become united with him in the likeness of his death, which we have if we're Christians, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then here's the part that I want to focus on. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. What happened when he was crucified? He died. It's a reference to his death, right? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, notice the with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. You see, we died to the old um, principle that had a hold on us. We, we, we were enslaved to sin, and we died to that enslavement. That old world order, if I can put it that way, is one of the commentators that I used uh, put it. We've died to the old world order that we were once a part of and, and uh, that, that dictated how we uh, were and lived and thought and spake and so on. Spoke, sorry. Got all King James on you. Um, so we are, we, and I'll keep reading. Um, for he, verse, uh, verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master, is no longer master over him. And again, I'm inserting this now, but by implication, because we have been raised with Christ, death no longer has, or excuse me, sin no longer, no, death no longer has mastery over us, because we are in him. And then he says in verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin, here it is, once for all, meaning for all his people. He died once for all, that's us. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then he says in conclusion there of, of the this first point, <clears throat> even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, <clears throat> but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, you are no longer a slave to sin as you once were. You're no longer a child of the devil as you once were. You have been freed from the guilt of sin. The guilt that condemned you is no longer condemning you because it's no longer there in the eyes of, in, in the eyes of God. And the power of sin, the enslaving power, I can't do anything but engage in this sinful thinking or engage in this sinful behavior or talk like this. I can't do, I can't, I'm not, yes you can. Once you're a Christian, you can. That you no longer are enslaved to the, the, the lusts of the flesh and the world and to the devil. And in fact, Paul says in uh, verse 9 of our, back to Colossians now, He says that you have laid aside the old self if you're a Christian. You've already laid it aside. It's already occurred. Now there's another sense in which it is still occurring. But fundamentally, it has already occurred. You're a fundamentally, the old self is no longer you uh, in in, uh, the real you. I'll put it that way. That's not the real you anymore, the old self. Yes, he's still there. He's wounded. He's dying. He's going to die fully. Um, and he's wounded and he's slowly, you know, losing his grip on you. But, but, but his fate is sealed. His doom is field, uh, sealed. The old self in you. So you've laid him aside. This is the, these are the implications, you see, of your death with Christ. And your union in that, your identification of that. Also, the text says, Paul says in the Spirit through him, that you've been raised with Christ. You've not only died with Christ, you've been raised. What does that mean? You've been united with him, identified with him in his coming back to life from death. You were dead. You were... No, I'm not going to go there. You were... You were, you were cold, dead, spiritually, in the ground, nothing but decay is what was true of you and me. Yes, we were walking around, talking, thinking, speaking, but we were zombies. I like to use that because I think it's a really good analogy. Even though there is no such thing as a zombie. But you know what I mean. You, you've, you've all seen the movies. Um, 
So we're, 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 but we are, we are participate in the coming to life and the, and the never ending life that, that was Christ's body, bodily following his resurrection. And again, this is a one time event. Uh, it, it is, it is with ongoing and indeed eternal consequences. You are alive in Christ because of his resurrection, and that will never change. Eternal life is just that. It is eternal. And we get it in this life. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven before we get eternal life. That's the ultimate you know, fruition of it. But What's the implications of the fact that you've been raised with Christ? Well, you too have conquered death. As his resurrection was a conquering of death for him, it is a conquering of death for you. As a result of your union with him, you have been made spiritually alive in Christ. You have been raised to newness of spiritual life, never to die again spiritually. And indeed, it guarantees also your bodily ascension should you happen to die physically. Your body dies before Jesus returns. Let's hope he returns today so we don't have to go through that. I don't want to. I imagine you don't either. But it's okay if, if it happens because it doesn't have the final say. End of Colossians, uh, Corinthians. Paul talks about that. And you have put on a new you if you have been raised with Christ. You put on, you are a new creature. You have, again, a new identity. Look at verse 10, which makes this point uh, in Colossians 3, Colossians 3.10. And uh, let me back up to verse 9 to start the sentence. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self, notice that is in the past tense, with its evil practices, and have put on the new self. You have put him on, it on. You are a new person who is being renewed um, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's you. And the text goes on to say, the Holy Spirit does through Paul, that we are hidden with Christ. We are hidden with him. It says that in verse uh, 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. In God. But this is the, the point is the life that you now have, the resurrection life that you now have, is securely hidden away, if I can put it this way, in the cleft of the rock. Your, your new life is bound up with the life of the enthroned Christ, it is, it is welded to Him spiritually, and put there for safekeeping. This is why we can have assurance of our salvation, folks. Because we, our life is hidden with Him. He is enthroned. He has gained the victory. He has the life. It's our life because it's His life. It's as if the moment you received new life, when you... Be, first became a Christian, that God took that life of yours uh, that you have in Christ now and placed it in a, in a huge, impenetrable vault in heaven where it is being protected by God's power, quoting Peter now, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Notice salvation there is a reference to something future. Salvation can be, and often is, most often is referred to something that has been passed for in, happened when we were born again, uh, when we were justified. But it also can refer to things present. We are, sanctification in some sense is used, Paul uses the word salvation or saved to describe what is happening right now to us. And there's a sense in which salvation is future. It's, we haven't yet participated in it. Because it's the, it's, a, it's the glorification part that we have yet to enjoy. But is, is protected. It's, it's, it's coming is assured because it is hidden. In Christ. If it were not, if your life were not hidden in Christ, God's perfect justice 
which would uh, uh, would otherwise would, would find you out and punish you justly for your sins and mine for uh, me for my sins forevermore in hell, were it not for our hiddenness in Christ. He hides us from his own justice, which he has already taken it for us, so that none of it comes to us. Only grace, only grace comes to you if you're a Christian. Only ever grace. Even when God is disciplining you, it's out of grace that he does so and love. Jesus took the wrath. You deserve and I deserve. Praise God. Because it's hidden. So what? So why is this so important? Well, obviously, I mean, it's quite obvious why it's so important. I've already just said it, but a few other thoughts on that before I move on to my next point. The way that we view ourselves, so we are to, uh, yeah, the way that we view ourselves and our status, our spiritual status, has a profound effect on the way that we act. If you continue to think of yourself as if you are still the old man, the old you, if you continue to focus on that's who I am fundamentally is my old self, chances are you're going to behave more or less like the old man. Because you know, as we think, so we are. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you think of yourself as I'm I'm a worthless person because I'm just a I'm just a wretch. And that's all I'll ever be is a wretch, a worthless human being. You're gonna behave like you're worthless. If you continue to think God God doesn't love me because I'm a wretch. Uh, he might have forgiven me, but he doesn't love me. You're gonna act like God doesn't love you. See, that's, that's wrong. You've got to understand and believe that you are who you are. That you are this fundamentally new person with a new identity. Christ. You identify with Christ now. You are new. You are under grace. And you've got to think that way because it affects the way you act and speak. Your countenance. It affects everything. How do you view yourself today if you're a professing Christian? How do you view yourself? I have a tendency, by the way, because of who I am and the way I'm constituted, to beat myself up a lot. And, you know, there, there's, there's room for self being critical of self, definitely. We need to, whenever we're confessing our sins to the Lord, we have to own up to the fact that we're, you know, we have sinned and offended God and what we've done is evil. But, I have a tendency to fixate on, oh, woe is me, and I'm just this awful person. Um, That's not right. It's not right. Again, there's, there's repentance requires that we honestly assess, I acted pretty ungodly just then. I acted pretty non-Christian just then. But that's not fundamentally who I am. Repent, turn from it, walk in new obedience, and understand you're a loved child of God who, yes, is a work in progress, but is a fundamentally a child of God, and that will never change. Okay, so we've looked at and spent most of our time on what's true of you and me as a result of our spiritual union with Christ. Let's look at, in verses 1 and 2, uh, how you are to live in light of your spiritual union with Christ. You are, Paul says, to keep seeking the things above. So let's talk about the things above for a moment. What, what are the things above? What's he referring to? Remember, he's talking about things were in heaven where Christ is. So the focus of what's above is Christ. And so what are the things above besides Christ himself? Well, the, 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 they are the things that belong, uh, or that, that are Christ's, um, how do I put this? All things about Christ. So, for example, Christ's priorities. We need to focus on the priorities of our king. 
he has given us marching orders. Uh, he, has, uh, he has told us, this is what is important to me. Your holiness and your witness to the world and your worship of me. You know, just to name a few. We are to focus on his priorities. We are to focus on his perspective. We are to think his thoughts after him. To say what um, uh, Van Til, Cornelius Van Til used to say. To think God's thoughts after him. We're trying to look at things from his perspective, not from ours, or the one that's natural to us, which is the old man's way of thinking. We're to think about things the way Christ is. Look at, look at our world and the events that are unfolding in the world or in my own life, the way Christ is looking at them. We're to focus on his honor. We're to, his honor is all important. His glory us glorifying him by our actions and the way we live and so on is all should be all important to us not who wins what ball game yes i'm referring to the one that's happening this afternoon which hopefully you won't watch at any rate we're to focus on his honor and his will for our life those are to be the, those are the things above that where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Those are the things we are to be thinking. Why? Again, because we have been raised heavenward in Christ. We have been seated, as Paul says in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 2, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I don't understand what that means because I'm here on the earth, but there's a sense in which I'm not. Spiritually, I'm not, and nor are you. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Our life, our, our resurrection life is the heavenly life. We are citizens of heaven, even though we're, we're strangers here in the earth. And Christ is our all in all. Whether we realize it or not, by the way, He is. How are we to do this seeking the things above? How are we to keep seeking the things above? We're to do it by Working to constantly, I'll phrase it that way, working or striving to constantly, consciously be doing this heavenward looking with the eyes of our heart, of our heart to Christ. Looking to Christ. Uh, look and setting our mind on his, the, those spiritual realities that our, and priorities that our Savior uh, prizes himself, as I was just talking about a moment ago. Which, by the way, in chapter 3, verse 12 and following, starts talking about. After he talks about the things you're supposed to put off, he starts talking about the things you're supposed to put on in verses 12 and following, which we'll look at in a few weeks, Lord willing. <clears throat> but we are to ponder Christ and his priorities. We're to yearn for them in our own lives. We're to seek after them. Pursue them through them. Uh, we're to practice the presence of God, uh, the pre- presence of Christ in our lives uh, by striving to think on Him throughout our day. As we're baking cookies and taking out the trash and soaping up our hair or whatever we're doing. And we are to also keep seeking the things above by not setting our mind on things that are earthly in terms of their um, and earthly in a negative sense not just you know because it's in the world it's not necessarily bad but earthly in the worldly sense worldly priorities worldly uh, ways worldly perspective the world's will for us which isn't good we're to keep seeking the things above in light of our union with Christ, we are to consider also, verse 5, we're to consider the members of our earthly body as dead to the deeds of the flesh. Let me read that. Notice the therefore, in verse 5, therefore, in light of what I've just said, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and then he lists these deeds of the flesh. You're to, you're to consider yourself. You're to, to, um, to see yourself as. You are to reckon yourself to be dead to the deeds of the flesh. And you're to remind yourself of that. It's an ongoing thing, especially when you're tempted. I don't have to do this thing. I don't have to 
blow up because somebody just cut me off. That's my favorite example. You all know that. Uh, in traffic. I don't have to want to hurt that person driving that car. Or at least tell him what I think of him or her. You know, I don't have to uh, defend myself when I know I'm innocent even though somebody's slandering me. Whatever the example is that you can come up with in your own mind, we are to, when we're tempted to do what we know is wrong, we need to remind ourselves, I don't have to, do, I don't have to act this way. I don't. I've got the power not to. And my king deserves my obedience, even though it's difficult right at the moment. Notice, by the way, in verse 5, the relationship between, again, I already alluded to it, but our identity in Christ, verses 1 through 4, and the attitude that we're to have toward the deeds of the flesh, which is that we're to see them ourselves as dead to those deeds, they go, it goes hand in hand, as evidenced by the therefore, with our, our sense of identity. Because you are this way, therefore, act this way. You're to act as if and to believe that you are dead to the deeds of the flesh. How do you know uh, that the members of your earthly body are dead uh, to such carnal deeds? How do you know that? You know it because you're united to Christ. That's how you know. Because he's dead. He died for you to those things. So you're dead. It's kind of the end of the conversation, really. What deeds are we referring to? Well, the deeds of which Paul gives us a representative sampling in verse 5 and verses 7 or 8 and 9. Uh, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry. Notice he said greed amounts to idolatry. It's worshiping something. Uh, then down in verse 8, uh, anger, ra- wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying, verse 9. And that's just a representative sampling. It's not an exhaustive list. But he's saying, these are the deeds that you are to consider yourself dead to, that no longer have power over you. You don't have to do them. Deeds in which you once walked, verse 7, but deeds uh, and deeds that will, if you continue to walk in them, regardless of what you're professing, uh, will bring God's wrath down in your heads if you practice those deeds ongoingly, even if you're a member in good standing of a church and have walked an aisle somewhere. These are the deeds that if you're truly a Christian, you're dead to. Now, if you claim that you are a Christian and you are unwilling to lay aside, and it's a matter of willingness, it's not a matter of perfection, but a matter of willingness, if you're unwilling to lay aside some of these sins or other sins like them that you know are sinful, that you know offend God, and you just don't care because I want this thing in my life, whatever it is. If you claim to be a Christian and you're unwilling to lay some sin aside, you're clinging to it, refusing to let go of it, you can be very confident that you are not a Christian. And as verse 6 indicates, if you continue to cling to that thing or those things, those deeds of the flesh, ongoingly, that when you leave this world, you will, cons- you will experience the fate spoken of or alluded to in verse 6. So, here's why you are to consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Because, verse 9, you have laid aside your old self. Actually, Christ laid aside your old self, but in Christ you have laid aside your old self with its evil practices. That's what he says in verse 9. You've laid it aside because you're in Christ. It's an event that already took place. Christ purchased your laying aside of your old self. He purchased it for you and applied it to you when you were born again and it, as a result of your union with him. And a second reason that you, uh, why you are to consider your members as dead is because you have not only laid aside the old self, you have put on the new self who is in the process of being renewed further. Verse 10. Having put on the new self, 
who, yes, is new, but is still being renewed also at the same time. As he says there in that verse. Already taken place. Already happened. And you're being renewed, by the way, by the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of this over in uh, Titus. He says in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he says, um, he, and he here is a reference to Christ, uh, or God, rather, um, saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You have put on the new self and you are being renewed in that new self by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And he uses, by the way, the means of grace to renew us. This is why it's so important for us to regularly and diligently avail ourselves of those means. What are those means? Those ordinary means of grace? Reading and hearing the preaching of the Word. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two sacraments, participation in them. Proper observance of the Lord's Day, as I alluded to earlier. And prayer. These are means that God has appointed for you to grow in grace and continue to be renewed and become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Are you... Could you be maybe employing those means a little bit better? I certainly could. Maybe even this afternoon employing those means a little bit better. I'll get off that horse. Um, Number three, and lastly and briefly, I mean it. Um, So we've looked at what's true of you as a result of your union with Christ, uh, how you're to live in light of your union with Christ, and what will happen to you, three, on account of your spiritual union with Christ? And we see that in verse four. When Christ, who is our life, the source of our life, our eternal life that we now have begun to, uh, to have, when he is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him. How? In glory. You will be revealed with him in glory. I will be revealed with him in glory. Christ is reigning right now in heaven at this very moment. He is seated in glory at the Father's right hand, not not, um, directionally, but positionally. He is. And you and I are in him, seated with him in some sense. We are reigning in some sense with him right now because he is reigning. And he is subduing all, all all, all of his rational creatures to himself by way of conversion or destruction. However, though we are reigning on account of our spiritual union with our reigning Savior, our reigning has not yet been manifested. At least not fully. Because, why? Because we have not yet been physically and and spiritually, in some sense, glorified. He is fully glorified. We are not. We are new creatures, but we are still trapped in this body of sin and decay. And we are still have that old, uh, fatally wounded old man, but he's still breathing within us. And so we have not achieved uh, full conformity to Christ yet. And this prevents us from being completely conformed to his image because of our position. Not yet. In, in the now and the not yet. Not yet fully Christ-like. But Paul promises, excuse me, the Holy Spirit happens to be through Paul, promises that one day this state of ethical ambivalence that is your state and mine will cease completely. There will no longer be such ethical ambivalence. You will behold him, Jesus, face to face if you are a Christian, and in his face you will see the triune God in him. He is what you will physically see with your glorified eyes, whatever. Um, But you will see in him the triune God in the person of Christ. And you will be like him. 
There it is. You will be like him. Not God. Not like the Mormons teach. No, but you will be like him ethically. You will be holy. Fully holy. You'll be rid of all the stuff that you dealt with this past week. The doubt. The pride. The lust. The greed. The indifference. You'll be done with all that. So will I. You will share in Jesus' moral perfection. And the burden of sin will be gone completely. Isn't that wonderful, folks? And not only will you be revealed with Christ in glory and glorified yourself, you will be revealed, you will be revealed with him when Jesus himself is revealed. That's when it's going to happen. It's a reference to the second coming. Paul speaks of uh, this in first, excuse me, in Second Thessalonians, over in Second Thessalonians chapter uh, one, verses seven eight. He speaks of that uh, time when Jesus will be revealed. He says, um, starting in verse seven, to give relief to you who are afflicted. He's in the middle of a sentence there. I shall back up to verse six. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, that is punishment, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the revelation of which Paul is speaking, and when we will be changed and be made like him. And we will be gathered to him at that time um, when he comes to retrieve us. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 7 speaks of that gathering. <clears throat> For the Lord himself, referencing Christ, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we, Paul was being optimistic here about himself, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's when all wrongs will be made right. That will be the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. Our bodies, if we died, will be reunited with our souls. Sin will be done away with. It will be indescribably wonderful. And all your burdens will be gone. Praise God, huh? And it's all God's doing. Him alone. Don't you want this? If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord, and the only one who can save you from God's wrath, which you deserve and I deserve. Trust him today. Put your trust in him today. For those of you who already have, rejoice. Rejoice. And spend this whole day, really this whole week, really the whole rest of your life, rejoicing in what God has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...